Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. Is there a right and a wrong view regarding marriage? Is there a right and a wrong view? Or can we just sort of make it up as we go? If there is no God, then there's no right or wrong about anything. All distinctions of right and wrong, if there is no God, are just people's personal opinions. That's if there is no God. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Ephesians. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 22 through 33 in a message titled, Jesus, Marriage, and the Christian. Now, here's Pastor Brian. Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So as we come to um, this section of the epistle on family relationships, of course, what we read included the relationship of the husband and wife as we go on and read a little further The parents are addressed, children are addressed, and we'll get to that as we make our way through this section. But before we get into the particular instructions given to the wives and husbands and parents and children, I thought it would be good to go back a step further and take a fresh look at the Bible's teaching on the subject of marriage itself. And I I think everybody would agree that it's probably a good idea to revisit this topic at this time in our cultural experience because there's obviously a ton of debate and a ton of confusion really over this whole issue of marriage. So as we think about it, a couple of questions. Number one, what is marriage? What is marriage? Is there, is there something that marriage is specifically supposed to be? When and how did it originate? Does it evolve over time? Are we free to reinvent it according to our likes and dislikes? So according to the 2008 
Gallup survey, a value and belief survey that they did, a record 70% of Americans believe divorce is morally acceptable. So for 70% of the people polled, divorce is no longer really an issue or a problem or to be seen as something negative. It is uh, morally acceptable. Uh, many in our culture, as you know, today would have no problem with uh, living together as a couple versus getting legally married. But this brings up a question. Is there a right and a wrong view regarding marriage? Is there a right and a wrong view? Uh, or can we just sort of make it up as we go? As I've said before, I'll say it again. If there is no God, then there's no right or wrong about anything. All distinctions of right and wrong, if there is no God, are just people's personal opinions. That's if there is no God. But if there is a God, and Jesus is his only unique son, and the Bible is his word, then there is a right way to understand and experience marriage. That, of course, is our position as Christians. We believe there is a God. And we believe that that God has spoken. And we believe that he has spoken on this topic. And so here we are today to get a fresh look at what he has said about it. So in looking at marriage today, I want to look at three things. I, I want to look at the origin of marriage. I want to look at the purpose of marriage. And then I want to look real quickly at uh, how it is that we can have a marriage that honors and glorifies God. So beginning with the origin of marriage, I wanted to use Jesus as our point person, if you will, on, on this uh, first question, the origin of marriage. And um, looking at Jesus. What did Jesus think of marriage? What did Jesus uh, have to say about marriage? Well, the first thing that I think is noteworthy is that Jesus performed his first miracle at a wedding. And I don't, I don't think that was accidental. He performed his first miracle at a wedding. You remember the story perhaps in John's gospel, the second chapter, Jesus goes with some of his friends to a wedding feast in a little town of Cana in Galilee. And while he's there, they run out of wine and his mother comes to him and she notifies him of that. And Jesus responds to her, he says, uh, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Uh, Mary was suggesting that Jesus could do something about this. And he did. He commanded them to take those six water pots of stone to fill them to the brim with water. And then he told them to go draw out from those water pots and, and give to the guest, and lo and behold, it was the best wine imaginable. So Jesus performed his first miracle there, and it was truly a miracle. It was a, a, it was a, a miracle of creation. He took water and turned it into wine, and we're told there by John, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. So this is the place that Jesus chooses. These are the circumstances that he chooses to reveal 
himself as the Messiah to his disciples at a wedding. I think it's significant because just like we have today, there was confusion in the culture at the time of Jesus over the issue of marriage. And we will see that as we look at a couple of other things. But I think in taking this opportunity to uh, display his glory for the first time, I think he was also reminding people that marriage was God's creation. So I think indirectly he was doing that. Now, Jesus also spoke on the subject of marriage. And let me read to you from Mark chapter 10. We have similar statements in both Matthew and Luke, but I'm going to use Mark today. Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. This is what Jesus said on the subject of marriage. He said, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So that's the statement of Jesus on marriage. He addressed it a few other times. And, and the context here really was a question about divorce. And that was usually where he did address it. Uh, but as we look at this statement here, three things emerge from this statement. Jesus taught us three things about marriage here. Number one, he taught us that marriage goes back to the beginning of history. Goes back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created them. Now, it's also, I think, interesting that Jesus is going back and he's making reference to Genesis. That's his authority. So he is the unique son of God. He's proven that by his miraculous deeds. But now he's drawing on the scripture as the authority. But he tells us from the scripture that marriage goes back to the beginning of history. It originated with and was instituted by God. Jesus makes that clear. In the beginning, God created them, male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So God, he, the whole thing originates with him. And uh, he institutes this, this thing of marriage. So the point is this. Marriage did not evolve from human society. That's what the... Uh, secular mind wants us to believe today that marriage is just a it's a human construct it just arose through a process of time out of culture I read some years ago that uh, the French were the ones who invented marriage and uh, I guess if the French invented something it would have been romance and things like that but that's not true uh, you can go back, you can go much further back than French history, and you find uh, the existence of marriage. And, and here we see it goes all the way back to the very beginning. So that's the first thing. The second thing that we see here in the passage is that marriage is by definition heterosexual. God created them at the beginning, male and female. And then a man shall leave his father and mother. He's talking about what would happen in the future. And they would become man and wife. The Bible knows absolutely nothing of same-sex marriage. Absolutely nothing. But you can search high and low in Scripture. And there are hundreds of references to marriage in Scripture. 
And it's as, cl as clear as anything, it's always the same thing. It's always uh, a heterosexual union, the relationship between a man and a woman. And then the third thing that we see here is that marriage is a unique union and intended to be permanent. So a man shall leave his father and mother, he shall cling to his wife, and the two shall become one. The two shall become one flesh. So there's something unique that happens here. And it's almost a, um, it's, in a sense, it's almost a mystical kind of a thing. But there's, there's a deep union that results from this marriage covenant. And it, it's almost something that's beyond explanation in one sense. I mean, you could see the two becoming one flesh when you have children. You know, of course, children are a combination of their, of their parents. So there you sort of have a, a visual picture of the two becoming one, yes. But there's no children in this original equation here. And of course, there are couples that have lived their whole lives without the ability to have children, never have had children. So it can't mean that the two become one in the sense that they have children together. It means something other than that, something apart from that. And to me, as I was thinking about it, you know, really, in a sense, like I said, it sort of defies explanation, but there's some deep thing that happens here. And of course, we... We know that to some degree, we understand it through our marital relationships. We, we know that to some degree in a negative way, in a painful way, when those relationships are torn apart. You know, when a divorce takes place, there's something that's, there's something that's torn apart. It's not, it's not as easy as walking out of, say, a business relationship, or it's not as easy as just walking out of a, uh, even a, uh, you know, a personal friendship. There's something deeper in a marriage. And God declared here that, yes, there would be this, this two coming together as one, and so that it's a unique union, and then God's intention is that it be permanent. Like I said, the context of the statement that Jesus is making here is the question about divorce. The religious leaders of the day who believed that you could, they, they kind of had their own version of a no-fault divorce. You could just sort of dismiss your uh, wife for anything. Uh, Jesus is correcting them is what he's doing. He says, no, God's intention is that there would be a permanency in this relationship. 70% of people say there's no moral problem with divorce. But again, if we understand that marriage isn't our invention, it didn't evolve out of society, but it's something that God invented, then we would be wise, to say the least, to pay attention to uh, what he has to say about it. Now, since we believe marriage is God's invention, we are going to pay attention to what God had to say about it. We can't control the culture. We can't enforce our position or, you know, demand that they see things from our perspective. That, that's really not even our job to do that. Our position and our obligation is really, since we believe that marriage is God's invention, is that we understand it and we comply according to what God's desire is for marriage. 
So that brings us to the second question. What is the purpose of marriage? So we see that God's the author, the originator, the inventor of marriage. But what did he have in mind? What was the purpose? What is the purpose currently? Well, when you go back to the very beginning, you see there in Genesis 2, the Lord God said, looking at creation and looking now at, um, at Adam. So at this point, there's only the man. And God's looking at the whole thing, and this is what he said. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper that is suitable or comparable to him. So based upon that, I think that we could say that the primary purpose of marriage is companionship. God sees that everything is good except this one thing. And the one thing that's not good is that man is lonely. He needs a companion. He needs somebody that is comparable to him. Somebody that is suitable. Somebody that is really, in a sense, uh, complementary to him. And so companionship is right at the top of the list. Mental and emotional companionship. Somebody that you can share your, your feelings with and experience those wonderful life experience with. A, a soulmate. Somebody that you can be intellectually stimulated by, challenged by. Somebody that you would have this kind of a relationship with. That's what God is uh, wanting to bring about here. But there's also the element of the physical companionship. And of course, to have the mental and the emotional, you, I mean, because we're all of those things combined into one, but the physical companionship here, you know, I was thinking about this today. I was just thinking about, you know, marriage as really in, in so many ways, it's like you, you get a, a partner for life. You get a, a co-laborer, somebody to do life with. And the way it usually works is you find that the person you're doing life with is very complimentary to you. I think of my own situation between Cheryl and I, and you know, it's so interesting how we are opposite in so many ways. But, and you know, you've heard this before and you've probably witnessed it, and maybe it's even your own experience, uh, to a large degree in marriages, what you have is an opposites are attracted to one another. And what you find is that the areas where you have a deficiency, the other person has the strength. And they come in, and as you come together as, uh, as husband and wife in this, in this very special union, there's this complementary thing that's happening, and you know, you're becoming, in, in a sense, a whole person within that, that relationship. Not to say that you, you, know, you couldn't be without it, but, but for those that are called to be married and for those that God brings together, there certainly is that aspect to it. I think of how dysfunctional my life would be in many ways if I didn't have uh, my wife there to make up the difference in a lot of areas. Every time she goes out of town, I'm reminded of the dysfunctionality of my own <laughs> life. And, you know, we don't cook food, we don't do dishes, we don't do anything. We just wait for her to get home. And, um, 
hopefully normal things will resume when she returns. <laughs> but you know, there's, there's something about that. I was, as, as I'm looking at the passage, I'm thinking, you know, this whole idea, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. You know, that, like I said a moment ago, there's something deep that happens there and that's that, that companionship that we're talking about. So that, that physical, mental, emotional companionship. And then that would be number one. Secondly, procreation. The, um, the bringing into existence of a, of a family. Now, some have mistakenly thought and taught that procreation was kind of the primary purpose of marriage. So you, 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 know, you get married to really just create a family so you can perpetuate the race. Procreation was certainly part of it. God said to Adam and Eve, you know, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But that wasn't the primary thing. And as a result of that wrong idea that a marriage was solely for procreation, then the idea became that you know, the sexual uh, relationship was solely for procreation. So if you, if you were having a, a sexual, um, you know, relationship with your spouse, but you were not doing so for the purpose of creating a child, you were instead doing it just merely for the pleasure of it, then somehow you were involved in sin. But all of these ideas are incorrect. They're not rooted in the scripture their um, philosophical ideas that would later come in. God created the sexual relationship as uh, a part of the companionship and the enjoyable element of our lives together as companions. But along with that, of course, comes the issue of procreation. The family, we've heard it many times before, you know, you know about the, the attack on the family. And of course, there's a lot of truth to that. The family is God's idea. This originated with God, that there would be families, and from families would come societies. God loves the, the whole picture of a community. He loves a picture of a community because, in a sense, it's a reflection of who he is. God exists in community. God is not a singular being. He, he is a triune being. So within God's very nature, there, there is a plurality. There's a community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally existing together. That, to understand that really sheds light on the, the idea of God being love. The Bible says God is love. And, and whatever God is, he always has been. So God's always been love. But if God was a singular being without a triunity, it would be very difficult to understand how he could be loved because love has to have an object. You can't love if there's nothing to love. So the fact that God is love really is kind of an indirect support for the other doctrine of the triunity in God's nature. And now, let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource on Back to Basics. A great book that I recently read was the book called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. 
And this is written by a young man named Gavin Ortland. And he is a brilliant writer. And this book deals with the subject of Christian unity. It just seems like so often we're divided up over theological issues. And many times we are dividing over things that don't really matter in the big picture. And so the title kind of indicates that, finding the right hills to die on. We don't want to die on every hill. There are certain things, obviously, we need to stand and fight for certain essential doctrines. So this book kind of puts in perspective what the priorities are. And so I highly recommend Finding the Right Hills to Die On by Gavin Ortland. Again, this month's resource is a book titled Finding the Right Hills to Die On by Gavin Ortland. You can order the book Finding the Right Hills to Die On by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book Finding the Right Hills to Die On by Gavin Ortland. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Ephesians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.